everyone, and welcome to Everyday Linux, episode 74, Making the Complex Simple, recorded November 18th, 2012, and brought to you by Element OP Productions, elementop.com. This week, we're going to uh, talk about the difference between risk computing and CISC computing, and you'll understand it better by and by. By and by, or when the morning comes, you will understand it better by and by. And to help me do that this week, as always, or as most of the time, our illustrious co-host, the command line godfather, Mr. Chris Neves. Hi, Christopher. Hello, everyone. How goes it tonight? Oh, I can't complain. We're only a couple minutes in, so so far, so good. Yeah, yeah. So far, so good. No interruptions, so let's keep it that way. And Uh here to bring balance to the force. The command line godfather on my on my left, and the gooey kid, Mr. Seth Anderson, on my right. Hiya, Seth. Hey, Mark, and greetings to the legions and legions of Element Opiates. Billions and billions of beings from all over the cosmos are listening to our <laughs> podcast right now. Uh, okay, that might almost scare me, but not quite. Now, we could say that if we were on the air, on radio... Because you never know, because radio, is just it just goes out there. But on the internet, sadly, I know exactly every time somebody downloads it. Well, if somebody's listening to us over any type of Wi-Fi, then it is being broadcast well, to go. the cosmos. Of course, well, technically, we're on Stitcher Radio, and I never know how many people download that, and a couple other services like that that, that take my feed and spread it out. And you never know, there may be a huge bootleg market for everyday Linux. Huh? You know, people may be carrying it from uh, place to place using... Cassette tapes and having more mi- lis- listening parties. Thumb drives. So uh, <laughs> you never know. <laughs> anyway, um, just okay. Sorry, got distracted. <laughs> something, wow, Mark, you broke the show already. Something nice. shiny pointed up, and I went, "Oh, look, squirrel!" Um, that's the challenge of being an ADD. <laughs> podcast host so uh uh scott right dowdle that was it yes. scott dowdle threw down a challenge he got saucy with it recently and um something like that in the chat room and uh chris ever one to take up a challenge says i'll do it what are we talking about chris he's challenged us to try out gnome 3 in unity to and actually give it a good hard testing to see what we think of it now, I can't say I'm going to do it for Unity because I just can't bring myself to do it. But I will take the GNOME 3 challenge, and I will use it for... Uh, he says to use it for two weeks. I'm going to use it because, you know, I, I can't just do anything a little bit. I have to go over and above. I'm going to use it for a month on all of my machines. So every single machine I now own has GNOME 3 installed on it and is the default desktop. So we'll see how I think of it. In a month. All right. Are you are you going wow. to? Uh, do you already have your decision made, and you're just waiting to pronounce judgment? Or are you actually going to be open minded about it? I'm actually going to try to be open minded about it. Ah, that's a lie. Linux geeks are never open minded about anything. Well, I'm going to give it a shot. <laughs> <laughs> that's all I can do is say I'm going to try. Uh, I would say that I'm going to give Unity a try, but that's not going to happen because that'd mean I'd have to load up Linux. And I don't... Wait a minute. This is a Linux show. I mean, yes, I love Linux. Uh, (laughs) um, Shame on you, Mark. I know. I know. I've gotten away from it. When I started the show, 
I literally used it every day, hence the name Everyday Linux. But my life has changed, my computing needs have changed, and I just don't anymore. Not any reason for it. Not that I'm anti-Linux. I just it, I've come to the realization. I spent um, a year with Ubuntu, and after a year, I come to the realization that it just doesn't matter. You can use any OS; it doesn't matter. So anyway, so use the Linux one because it just works. It just makes your life easier. You know, and I probably will. We've we've had we've rehashed this a hundred times. When I first bought this laptop, Linux didn't have drivers for it. I need to go back and check and see. But now I'm. Uh, um, entrenched, right? I've got all my settings right, and it'd be yep. just it'd be it'd be moving to a new computer, and and uh, you know the inertia, even human inertia, is a powerful thing. Yep, or lack of inertia. Yes. So uh, this week is Thanksgiving week. Uh, by the, when this show comes out, it will be Thanksgiving Eve, uh, <laughs> if there is such a thing. Um, yeah, I was going to say so, I don't think that exists. <laughs> so uh, people's houses will be smelling like. Pumpkin pies and cookies and um, turkeys will be um, rapidly thawing because you forgot to buy them until the day before and all sorts of good things like that. So we wish you a happy Thanksgiving here in the U.S. Uh, if you're outside the U.S., I hope you have an enjoyable Thursday. Oh, speaking of Thanksgiving and bacon, did you see my um, my Facebook uh, profile picture? I made it a turkey that had literally <laughs> been wrapped in bacon it might be the most beautiful thing i have ever seen in my life well was, there's two versions sight. of that picture i've only seen uh on most uh facebook pages the the uncooked bacon one but there's a picture of it after it was cooked too and it looks unbelievable yes um yeah my heart hurts just looking at it <laughs> <laughs> yeah you know everybody's got to go sometime and there there's probably there'd be a lot worse ways to go but you'd die in your sleep because the tryptophan from the turkey would put you to sleep. Then the cholesterol right. would stop your heart. And so you would die peacefully in your sleep in a bacon-induced coma. <laughs> I mean, really, if, if you had to pick ways to go, I mean, come on. That's got to be at the top of the list. It's way up there. You know, it's, yeah. Yeah. it's yeah. certainly yeah. above drowning or dying horribly in a fire. It's, it's right. way above that. Um, so anyway, we had to talk about bacon because I don't remember if we mentioned it last week. So. Anyway, we got our bacon in. Yeah, if you well, don't we know what we're talking in. about, go to the LMNOP forums. The uh, uh, There's a bacon thread in the LMNOP forums. Somebody posted the picture there. So if you haven't seen it on the various social networks, you can find it at LMNOP.com, the bacon-wrapped turkey. Somebody took a lot of time to lattice wrap a, a whole turkey with bacon. Yeah, or at least took a lot of Photoshop. So one of the two. <laughs> Chris, you were saying something? Uh, if I was, I don't remember what it was. All right. Clearly, it was Something very flash. important. Uh, so speaking of posts in the forum, uh, we have a comment from a fellow by the name of Richard uh, who uh, commented on our last show, and he uh, sent it in an email and also posted it in the forum, so I thought I would read it to you. It's fairly lengthy, but uh, that's okay. We like long-winded here on the show. We're a collection of gas bags. Um, most of the time he says hi guys uh, i did post this on the forum but i wanted to send it to you directly as uh as well uh, firstly let me say how much i enjoy everyday linux and in the short time i've been listening to it it's become one of my favorite podcasts favorite with a u so we know he's from the uk and even if i don't agree with everything you say i wish i could have left this voicemail excuse me even if i don't agree with everything you say period 
I wish I could have left this as a voicemail uh, for you, uh, but Google Talk doesn't work in the UK. Ha, hint number two that he's from the UK. I have had to resort to writing down my thoughts. I'm an IT professional and have been working in the field since the late 90s, primarily with Microsoft products, but I do have expertise of using OS X, OS X, whichever you say, and Linux. My first encounter with Linux was in the late 2002, and I was looking for a cheap, i.e. free, solution for a school I was working for when they required a server for sorting old student data and didn't have storing old student data and didn't have the funds available to purchase a new Windows-based server. During my search, I came across a community of driven OS called Linux, and even though it, I didn't use it in the end, I could see it was potentially not only uh, I could see its potential not only as a as a server OS but as a possible replacement for Windows on the desktop. But it wasn't there yet, and it was still far way too. Uh, t- wow, I'm sorry, I, I don't have any reading uh, cred tonight for some reason. Um, as 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 it was still far way too. As it was still far too complex for the average person to use easily. Some in the Linux community realized this, and they stated that for Linux to become uh, available, a viable alternative to Windows, it would have to be easier to use with less reliance on the command line and improved hardware support, just to name two items that needed to, to improve. Then along came Ubuntu, and I can remember thinking that this distro could be, this distro could be what we had been waiting for. It was easy to install, had excellent hardware support. It wasn't perfect, but it was a starting point in making Linux an easy OS, uh, easy to use OS. However, the community was divided because by making Linux usable by the masses, it had apparently dumbed down Linux by removing the reliance on the command line as well as disabling the root user. Move forward in time to now, and the things still have not improved in the community. Yes, Linux has improved and gotten even easier to use, due to, uh, but due to infighting in the community, it's still not a cohesive force. Unless the members of the community stop acting like spoilt children, Linux, um, oh, period. Uh, Linux is versatile enough to allow it to be used by both power users who want to spend their time compiling software f- from source via the command line. Hi, Chris. And uh, whilst Mr. and Mrs. Average user um, want to use it to browse the gossip on Facebook. Ubuntu is Hello. still with us and is still working to create an easy-to-use distro for everyone to use. Um, though we may not have done, we may not lock what they have done with things like Unity. For now, the infamous uh, and for now the infamous link up with Amazon. But to give credit where credit is due, uh, they do have one of the most well-rounded and polished distros around. And instead of cr- criticizing them, we should be working with them, and that also applies to them as well as they are as much a part of the community as you or I. It is understandable that they uh, want to make money, and after all, they're a business, and one doesn't go into a business for the fun of it. Yet Canonical could have made the shopping lens an option in the install procedure. Uh, but if you don't want it, then it's easy enough to remove it, though it could easier uh, could be easier if they added it to the software center. Saying that Linux is and should remain a niche OS and should remain in the realm of the power user isn't just wrong, it's just plain stupid. I'm a power user, but when I get home, I don't want to spend my time trying to get things to work in Linux or Windows, for that matter. I just want them to work with the minimum of fuss or aggravation. That's one of the reasons I don't use Windows 8 at home and why I want an easy-to-use Linux distro. I want to be able to just play World of Warcraft and sync my iPad without problems. What we need to do is work together to fix not only those those things, but we need to make sure that Linux just works for everyone. There are so many talented and skilled programmers in the community that these should be trivial issues to fix. 
and it will show people that we can work together and make things happen. We have already made progress with things like printer support as well as wireless and graphics drivers, so it can be done. We say we're a community and therefore we should act like one or we're going to get to a point where there will no longer be any community and we can only blame ourselves for that and no one else. Not Canonical, not Microsoft, not Apple, just ourselves. In essence, we need to grow up and start acting like adults. These are my views and I will probably get flamed for what I've said, but I don't care as I believe they should be said. I would also like to be locked in a room with Mark Shuttleworth, Lannis Torvalds, and Richard Stallman and, quote, help them overcome their differences. But that's, the, as they say, is another story. And the <laughs> fact that he says that we have no one to blame but ourselves is yet another clue he's not from America. <laughs> so. <laughs> because Americans never take responsibility for anything. Yeah, and it was Winston Churchill who said you can always count on Americans to do the right thing after they've tried everything else so uh <laughs> but yeah so yeah we have to blame we have to blame someone else so that's why his plan will never work now you said some things there richard that uh, uh we've echoed on this show uh maybe not in those uh vitriolic of terms uh but i've you know as i've often said sometimes the biggest um negative to the linux community is the community itself uh they tend to be uh exclusionary now, let me rephrase that. We, because as you said, I am part of that community, I have a tendency to be exclusionary and have uh, not a lot of patience for the new user, which is one of the reasons this show exists. We are trying to uh, um, impress upon the everyday user that you can actually use Linux. I remember uh, about five years ago, I was having a conversation with a guy who um, asked me to do something with the print cap file. And I said, I don't know what a print cap file is. And he said, and you call yourself a Linux administrator? Yes. As a matter of fact, I do. I use the GUI and it works really well and it gets everything done I need to do. And I've never opened a print cap file in my life. Uh, and so it, that's, that's who I want to be. I want to be the guy who uses the tool, not the guy who uh, uses every arcane part of the tool. Chris, right. what's a print cap file? It's where the printer stores its temporary file for it before it jumps into the printer itself as it sends it. So, kind of like the print queue in Windows. So why would you want to use it? To redirect it, to mirror it to another printer. Um, there's there a lot aren't of pretty clicky for buttons for you to be able to do that? <laughs> well, not in the same way that you can mirror it or Anyway, yeah, there's, <laughs> there's reasons for it and there's reasons not for it. Um, though most people anymore, they don't use the print cap file. Most of those are, are, you know, those, that, the use of the print cap file, I don't even think is even used anymore because they've moved on to other things. We're all using cups now and, yeah. you know, and it works just fine. So, but anyway, my point was that, uh, to this particular gentleman, not knowing how to manually edit a cups, uh, file, excuse me, a print cap file made me, um, not eligible for the title of Linux administrator. The fact is I've been administrating Linux boxes in an enterprise environment for over a decade, but yeah. I didn't meet his standard of a true Linux geek. Well, and that's the case normally with anybody when it comes to if they think they're elite enough to be called an administrator, because that's supposedly such a um, great term to have, I guess. Uh, I really don't care if I'm called an administrator or not. But uh, a lot of times they, they get the preconsumption that an administrator knows everything. 
or can do everything on any point of that. And and it's just, I don't know, it, it's being naive is what it is. Because even an administrator, regardless if you're a Windows administrator or a Linux administrator or a whatever they call a, a an Apple administrator for their Apple servers, you still have to look things up. Right. Not everyone stores everything in their head. You know, I have a couple thousand books and a couple of command line references that I still have to go back to when I'm looking for that one switch in that program because I can't remember exactly how the thing wor- is worded. You just can't keep everything in your head. Well, you that can, right. but things start bumping into each other and it gets a little crowded in there. <laughs> oh, yeah. So, Seth, do you have any comment on that from the gooey kid perspective? No, I mean, you know... I've been an administrator for many years, but um, I don't have the administrator cred because I like the GUI. Um, it just it makes it simple, especially in today's world. You know where your tech departments are slashed, and they're like half of what they need to be to support everything. You can't be an expert on everything you have. If you have point-and-click GUIs that are easy to figure out, then somebody who has never worked on this program, never even heard about it until it broke, and you have to fix it. I don't have time to learn the specifics of the command line, but I can look at the GUI and I can fix it and I can get it back up and going without understanding how the program works. Plus, you just have to like the name GUI, honestly. Yes, you do. (laughs) You have to like the GUI. Uh, You got to love the GUI. Um, So, yeah, I, I mean, you know, I sometimes going to the command line is cool and there are certain things where it is just easier um you know if you're dealing with ip addresses in windows yes you can right click the icons and get in it or you can go you can go start run cmd ip config space slash all and you can see all the information you need you need to know about your ip address so you know the command line is there and it will never go away but you need the gui to make it simpler otherwise Otherwise, you're going to be the niche thing that only, you know, you're one of two people in the world that know how to do this on the one computer it used to be used on 20 years ago. So, uh, you know, that, that but on the same note, on the same note there, Seth, yeah, the GUI is important and everyone needs to know how to use the GUI. But look at all the stuff that even Windows is putting out for Windows PowerShell that is PowerShell tools only. So I hate those, even so I know. Yeah. Yeah, I know. They're, they're, and they're convoluted and they're hard to use, just like the Linux terminal. So it's it's one of those things that the command line is never going to go away. And it's going to be for the elite users that know how to do everything through that terminal. But it's not going to be the, perp- the, the one, one thing to rule them all because not everyone's going to spend the time to learn all those arcane commands. Now, granted, I'm one of those people that wants to learn all those arcane commands, and I push myself to le- to use them every day. But I want to be able to do that in case something blows up, and I need to go back to just a terminal. Yeah. See, my yeah. thinking on that is: wait until it crashes, then learn it. Why? Why learn it first when you may never need it? I don't know how to do differential algebra, but when the time comes that I ever actually need to use. I don't even know if differential algebra is a real thing. Differential calculus. If I ever really need to use differential calculus, there are resources out there, and I will learn it. Otherwise, why waste the time? Yeah, and well, well and part of that goes, I'm someone, you know, you got to be, if you're in technology, you have to be, to some extent, a logically-minded person. Now, um, and so you could pick up, like, I'm not a command Darn, line. Darn, that's my problem. 
Yeah, <laughs> I'm not a command line godfather, but when I've had to, I've busted out the command line and learned how to do all kinds of things because that was the only way to do it. But, you know, I'm in IT. I have that predisposition to be shut in a room surrounded by machines and shun human contact. So I'm going to do fine with a GUI or a command line. And I just like the GUI. All right. All right. Enough about that. Thank you for your feedback. We appreciate it. And we'll move on to the news segment of the show. Uh, and we're going to talk about one of the uh, tech behemoths, one of the first names in Linux uh, that uh, rolls off your tongue. As soon as you say Linux, that's, of course, HP. Um, not so much. Uh, HP, uh, their biggest, they, they do sell Unix servers or, or servers designed to use for, for Unix. And then they really threw everything they had into WebOS for about a month and a half. Uh, but now they're trying to get back on the Linux bandwagon. Seth, tell us how. Well, in the um, they announced at the LinuxCon Europe event that they made a $500,000 investment, and they are now a platinum member of the Linux Foundation. Um, and yes, they do have um, Linux and Unix servers, and they are a pretty big player. And so they're... You know, of course, I'm sure they've invested lots of money in Microsoft stuff as well. But, you know, they aren't, Linux isn't a fad for them. And 500000 which, you know, is still a lot of money, even if you are a multi-billion dollar company. Um, so anyway, yeah, they are now a platinum member of the Linux Foundation. Uh, and they have a seat uh, on the Linux Foundation Board of, direct, board of Directors now. Um, so, yeah, I just... Um, Plus, you know, they got a spiffy coffee mug. Well, no, they probably got like at least three or four coffee mugs uh, for 500000 I think you get one per 100000 Um <laughs> Yeah, but so anyway, they are, uh, you know, they're throwing some money in the, in the Linux world, and uh, they're a big company, one of the largest computer companies, until they screw something else up. Um, but, uh, you know, so... Anyway, there you are. Linux is in the news, and it's only going to get better because HP gave them some marketing dollars. Well, there you go. Yeah, there you, it's it's going to be interesting to see if them being on the board of directors changes anything. Maybe if they're since they're now pushing some effort into Linux, maybe they'll make some of their drivers more available for the Linux kernel as well. That could yeah. be a, a side benefit from having such a play on from HP. Yeah, getting a major hardware player involved uh, more heavily with the Linux Foundation can't help but make it better, uh, I would think. So that's my hope anyway. I really think that the reason um, HP did this was because Microsoft was recently announced as a gold sponsor of Linux, and they had to one-up them. <laughs> that's possible. Yes, that is true. And that is, when you think about it, it is kind of a a weird story that Microsoft is now um, like a gold sponsor of Linux. And they, you know, we talked about several months ago now how they are one of the major contributors to the Linux kernel in terms of numbers of lines of code. And so now they're kind of playing it has a, um, has a, you know, we have a common enemy in Apple, so let's uh, team up to take them down. And kind of like, you know, our, my enemy's enemy is my enemy, but they're also my friends. So, um, you know, they're a frenemy of Linux now, and they're a gold-level sponsor to them. Uh, it's kind of one of the... I want, and, you know, Microsoft also 
did the thing. Remember, Apple was about to go under, and Microsoft bought a stake in Apple's company. And uh, and they're so happy know, about that today. What, you oh, know, I'm probably, sure. Well, they probably are able to dodge a lot of uh, antitrust stuff now uh, a lot better by saying, uh, excuse me, we're not even in the smartphone market. Why don't you mess with Apple and leave us alone? So, um, And besides, if they still own that stock in Apple, they're probably making a good return on their investment now that Apple's going to start doing dividends. So, But yeah, interesting story. I uh, thought it was cool. I thought our uh, our Linux listeners would love to hear about it. And then a little bit of uh, oops in the news there. Uh, FreeBSD, one of the uh, distros known for being uh, security-centric and being built from the ground up for security and often used in in appliance uh, network appliances, uh, well, their servers kind of got hacked. Oops. Yeah, it was detected on November the 11th, um, and apparently it happened back on September 19th and they've since like gone through and um, checked everything and they can't see where any files have been altered um, or anything or and uh, but they advise that anybody who downloaded stuff between September the 19th and November the 11th should probably um, just blow away nuke and rebuild their machines redownload their stuff so yeah you know it's one wow. of those that it, it doesn't matter who you are you're not immune yeah, well, here's um, the thing. I, I led into that in such a way as to uh, make you believe that FreeBSD is weak. But the fact yeah. is, it was that old wetware interface that got them. They yep. stole a user's SSH key, a developer who has uh, passwordless access to the servers. They managed to get the SSH key from him, and at that point, they were that developer. So it didn't have anything to do with an insecurity or a vulnerability. It was just plain old human interface problem. Yep. They they stole someone's password and that's all it that's all it takes. And it doesn't matter how secure your systems are, how good your security is, if you're letting your passwords or in this case your SSH keys um out into the wild because once somebody uh pwns you, they own you. That's all there is to it. There's nothing yep. you, can, you know, they're trying to clean up the mess, which is kind of the best they can do. Uh but you know, that that's all there is to it. The humans will always be the weakest link in any technology chain you are the weakest link (laughs) (laughs) i think we have royalty now (laughs) mark seth have you guys ever tried to install free bsd before only as part of an appliance i rarely even say free sbd so (laughs) (laughs) i uh i did it uh what what is that uh oh i'm blanking on it there's a free nas free nas is bsd based uh, so, yeah. you know, I installed it as part of that appliance install. Well, I tried it once just as just so I could say I've tried it. And, man, it took me forever to get things installed and ran on that thing. Um, maybe it was just the fact that I tried it when I was a green Linux guy. But, man, FreeBSD is definitely for those who really want to get into their system. <laughs> so, um uh, as we were talking about Ubuntu earlier and how they could grow in the desktop market, it turns out they're growing in the server market as well. Uh, and that's a that's a, a strategy Microsoft has known for years, get people in the desktop world, and they'll take it to work with them. And uh, recently, uh, Ubuntu is up to 7% of all web servers in the world. That doesn't sound like a lot, uh, but that's up from uh, 55 last year. 
Yeah, and apparently the Ubuntu, you know, it's it's one of the like of the mainline distros. It's it's pretty easy to install, and it has usually excellent hardware support. So um, you know, it's one of those if you're into uh, creating websites, you don't want to have to spend weeks getting the underlying OS up and running. You just want a framework that you can pin your website on. So bu just put something up there, it works, and then spend your time developing your website. And Ubuntu pretty much just works. And you can install packages for LAMP or LASP or whatever acronym you want there. <laughs> and Because uh, there, there's a bunch of them. Right. But, you know, um, LAMP is still the one most widely known and then you can then install your build your websites out on top of that so uh, they are currently the third most popular Linux distro on the World Wide Web in terms of being servers um, and uh, so yeah you know uh, let me see Debian is first CentOS is second and uh, Ubuntu is third but one thing I came across is that Microsoft has 35.8% of the Linux, of the uh, web servers and Linux has 32.8%. So I thought um, Linux used to be much higher and Microsoft used to be much lower uh, than that. But anyway, there's some numbers for you uh, and not just percentages because you know you can say percentages as anything. But uh, um, yeah, BSD has some magic in the uh, chat room ask what the remainders were and I didn't uh, get them all out of the article but uh, free BSD or BSD Unix has many and then of course the other category um, and uh, this article was pretty much just talking about Linux and, and didn't list out percentages right. of everything so so Linux may be good on the desktop it's definitely uh, gaining ground on the server market but where, it, where it's really crushing it is in the supercomputer market 88% yeah. of supercomputers uh, are using Linux these days. Well, yeah, that's 88% of the uh, top 50, but the top 25 is 100% Linux. Uh, yeah, so Linux is all about the supercomputer. And where are most of those supercomputers being uh, built and used, Seth? Well, um, for a while, America had really fallen behind in the supercomputer race, uh, and they, you know, like Japan and China were really doing it. But uh, starting last year, kind of America is back on top. The Sequoia Blue Genie um, at the uh, Livermore National Laboratory and Titan at the Oak Ridge National Lab Laboratory in Tennessee. Yes, Tennessee is home of the world's fastest computer. So a smarter redneck was never built, I guess. 17.59 uh, <laughs> tera or petaflops a second. And Which is 17.59 uh, uh, quadrillion calculations per second. That's a one followed by a lot of zeros. Yeah, yes, no and it's kidding. I mean... You know, it's not New York or Silicon Valley or some tech place. It's freaking Tennessee, you know? <laughs> I mean, I don't know what they're doing. I guess they're trying to come with a better moonshine recipe. <laughs> <laughs> no, so I know that Tennessee has some good uh, good tech places in it. But, you know, you don't, when you think of tech centers in America or around the world, I doubt Tennessee is at the top of your... Uh, is at the top of your list. But anyway, they are currently home to the world's fastest supercomputer. So uh, the top two and uh, what four of the top five are in America. 
And so, so stepping back to the totally other end of the sp- spectrum, from the supercomputer to the microcomputer, uh, there is a new uh, sheriff in town when it comes to Linux on ARM called Lenaro. Yes. Um, Lenaro is a nonprofit engineering organization. They, they develop open source software for the ARM, ARM architecture. And they recently formed the Lenaro Enterprise Group, which uh, has a perp- Its goal is to um, basically bring Linux into the ARM ecosystem. Um, so, you know, because Linux can perform very well on like a Wintel, you know, Intel x86 chip but as far as linux on arm there isn't it doesn't go so great uh you know but android which is kind of linux and it's being merged back in with the core uh does really good on that but why have android when you can have the benefits and strength of all the different um distros of linux available on there so anyway that's lenaro and the lenaro enterprise group leg they have created that, you know, they're trying to, uh, it's yet another stone in the road to total Linux domination. Uh, the sooner the better. Uh, anyway, it was a cool story and uh, it ties in with what we're going to be talking about tonight. So it's kind of a way to maybe get by Intel um, and, you know, and since Windows is such a big market in Intel, they have a lot of say on what goes on into the Intel's chipset. But this is just kind of a way to get outside of the confines of Intel and Microsoft in a more open architecture. And of course, openness is where Linux and open source thrive. All right. And so the topic at hand, as you mentioned, uh, is we're going to talk. Uh, this is something that uh, I thought would be interesting to talk about. Uh, the other two guys went, yeah, whatever. Um, <laughs> and uh, we've we've talked a lot about uh, the moving of computing in general to the mobile platform, and uh, we have mentioned the ARM processor thousands of times uh, on this show. And so I thought it would be interesting to take a little look, a little technical, get your wind up your propeller beanies because this is going to be a technical show. Uh, those of you who are um, not all that technical, hold on, uh, go grab your best geek buddy, and uh, maybe they can walk you through it, but I will try to make it as simple as possible. But we're going to talk about what um, the ARM chipset is um, and how it came to be versus the Intel chipset. Uh, and before we go uh, that too, uh, too far into that, you have to understand uh, the terms RISC and CISC. C-I-S-C stands for Complex Instruction Set Computing. Um, and uh, complex instruction set computing is the way chips were designed pretty much from their infancy. When, when we started designing microchips in the early 60s, late 50s, we, we started, the idea was uh, we're going to make the chips complex so that we can make the program simple. So that's essentially what uh, CISC computing is, complex instruction set uh, computing. So um, what that means, and basically Intel. Intel is the biggest CISC chip maker in the world. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about why you would might want to make your processor complex. There's some benefits and some drawbacks. Uh, the benefits of it are um, you have uh, less sophisticated code is required. For example, uh, in the early days, in the 60s and 70s, um, an engineer or a programmer would go to an engineer and say, you know, I'm doing a lot of XORing. XORing is where you take all the bits in a string and flip them. If they're a one, you make them a zero. If they're a zero, you make them a one. 
there's a lot of reasons you want to do that from from crypto to uh, to you know uh, data analysis to binary searches there's lots of reasons you would want to do that and it's a it's a complex process so they went to the engineers and said hey guys can you build xor into the chip so that all i have to do is just call the command xor and the chip does it and then it'll be lightning fast and i won't have to write any code i can just write xor this value and it'll do it so the engineers went back and said sure that sounds good um and then the uh, then the programmer said you know what um we don't really have a simple method for multiplying i would like to multiply i don't want to have to write code that does that can you just write a multiply thing? Because what what computers do before that did before that, and in uh, the risk uh, in uh, chipset is they um, they don't multiply; they add and, and subtract, and you logarithm logarithmically add, and that becomes multiplication. Uh, so and and you logarithmically uh, subtract, and that becomes division. So they went to the engineers and said, "Hey guys, can you put that in the chip?" And so chips got faster and faster, and they could, and programs got faster. And the reason you would want to do that is back in the day, a megabyte of RAM, I forget megabyte, a byte of RAM would cost roughly as much as a house. So if I have to use less RAM storing my code, things are better. Transistors were cheap. So we'll put more transistors in the chip, make it able to do things, then we won't have to store it, and we won't have to put things in memory. So the chips got bigger. The bigger the the x86 architecture that that we talk about when we talk about uh, the Wintel machines, the Intel, the the uh, 686, the 586, the Pentium. For those of you who are who are younger may not know that Pentium was the trademark name for the 586 series of chips. And uh, before that was the 486 and the 386. Uh, so it's it's what we call the x86 architecture. Is really the last remaining complex instruction set uh, code uh, uh, computers around. Uh, and their, their legacy, they're in there because you've got all this code written that just has a just a, a multiply command and just go. That's how everything is written. It's all it expects it to be in the chip. Uh, that gives you uh, a number of advantages, less storage, less RAM. You can do more operations per clock cycle. If all I have to do is say XOR, that's a complex organi- uh, operation but the chip can do it for me in one clock cycle. So if I'm running my machine at 3 gigahertz, which is 3 billion cycles per second, I can XOR something in one-third of a billionth of a second, whatever that is, in a really small amount of time. And uh, also back before there were compilers, engineers or software engineers were writing everything directly in, in machine language, assembly language. So it's easier to write that code if the chip is doing the work for you. So programs were smaller, easier to write. They were able to bang them out uh, quicker. The, all the geeks at IBM with the white shirts and the black ties and the horn glasses were able to write less code more quickly because the guys in the hardware side of things were putting things right in the chip. So they didn't have to write the software. The chip was doing it for them. You with me, guys? Oh, yes. yes. Any comments yeah. on that? No, I just remember the Weird Al song. It's all about the Pentiums. I still love that <laughs> song, but uh, doesn't really. It doesn't really. It's not germane to the conversation. Well, just to to go a very brief history. Um, one of the modern chipsets, what we would call modern, it's it's pretty ancient, but in the late seventies, uh, uh, early eighties, uh, was called the eight zero eight eight eighty eighty eight. 
chipset. And that was a, a specific set of instructions. Later, as odd as it may seem, came the 8086. I don't know why 6 came after 8, but it did. 8086 was the chipset that took uh, that caught on. The second generation of that was called an 8286. The third generation was called an 8386. Eventually, we just stopped dropping the first 8. They were 286 processors, 386 processors, 486 processors. The Pentiums were the 586. And then we sort of stopped counting. If we were still counting, uh, the modern Core i7 would be like the 1486. Uh, process. It's still the same chipset, just being uh, refined over time. So there you go. Quick bit of history there. <laughs> yes. So those are the advantages of using CISC processing. processing. Some of the drawbacks are pretty significant. Every time you add a, something to the chip, the chip gets more complex. That's more transistors. In case you don't know, the way everything does everything um, is to uh, to um, to use a transistor, a one or a zero. That transistor is even either on or off. So every binary action in a computer requires a new transistor. Uh, and Moore's law that we we often misquote uh, uh, said that we will figure out a way to put twice as many transistors on a chip every eighteen months. And we've sort of co-opted that to mean computers are going to get twice as fast every 18 months. But really, it was all about the number of transistors you could put on a chip, because that's a big deal. The, the, the more transistors you could put on, the, the more stuff you could do, the more powerful your chip would be. But when you put more transistors on a chip, it makes the chip bigger. Or you've got to make your transistor smaller. So that's really what we've been focusing on. The, the uh, processor plate, the, the die that goes on a processor, the size of that really hasn't changed since the 80s. It's roughly a two-inch square. And we've just been cramming more transistors in that space. And now, if you look at a processor, it's a two-inch square, but the chip is a, an eighth-inch square in the middle of that two-inch square. We just put it on a plate that's two inches square because that's the, way the, the form factor we've been using all along. So more transistors equals more heat. That's why your processors have to have big fans on them. That's why your 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 video cards now have a big fan on it. Why some uh, super uh, high powered gaming rigs have water cooled or even nitrogen cooled for those supercomputers, uh, because transistors have electricity run through them. Electricity creates heat. More chips, more heat. Also takes more power. Now there's been a real focus over the last decade in re in reducing the amount of power it takes mainly because everybody's going mobile with laptops but still the complex instruction set computing um, requires more power it just does there's no way around it and the chips are bigger so when we start moving things into cell phones that becomes a real big deal when it was when it was in a desktop it didn't matter there's lots of space in there we moved to laptops. It started mattering, but the, the, the technology far outstripped it. But now when we're putting a super powerful processor in a phone, you know, we talk about phones like the, the Nokia M900 uh, is running an x86 processor. So you can run desktop Linux on that phone. And I've never used one, but from what I understand, it's screaming hot and runs the battery down in a couple of hours. Uh, because that's a that's a chipset. It's a function it's functionality that just uses more energy, and it's more complex to build. It takes uh, 
you know, as we get smaller. In fact, that's the reason we don't talk clock speed anymore in marketing because we hit about a three gigahertz limits, like three point two or so. We we reach the the limitation of physics. We can't make the clocks go any faster in the space we have. Uh, supercomputers, obviously, that uh, seventeen quadrillion. Uh, operations per second are operating differently but it's an entirely different um uh technology so the stain the x86 processor we kind of hit a limit we can't go any faster so what, what do we do guys how did we do that once we couldn't go any faster you added more site or more more chips that's right you started throwing you, you got them smaller now so you started throwing more chips on a processor calling them cores you have your your dual core your quad core your oct core your 12 core um because we sort of maxed out the physical limits of what we could do with the x86 architecture. We can't, we can't go no mo. So the way we fix that is just pr- parallel processing. Your, your laptop is a supercomputer, whether you realize that or not. Um, so, there, yeah, uh, Dowdle in the chat room is talking about threading. Uh, threading is a trick where you can use a processor one and a half to 1.8 times more efficiently. Uh, um, Intel called it twice as fast. That was marketing speak. It never was twice as fast. Uh, but then when that didn't, so they're still doing that. You're still hyper-threading, which is just lining things up in a way that you're you're using the the processor ultimately, which means you're keeping it hot all the time because you're hot. You're keeping all those transistors running all the time. Yep. Uh, so you're using more energy and you're keeping you're generating more heat. Um. And they also got shorter pipelines, so that made things move faster as well. Right. A pipeline is, is like, uh, think of that as the assembly line of your computer. Like, have you ever seen assembly line on TV where they're building a car and it moves over and this guy puts a door on and it goes over and this guy puts a fender on and it goes... Your computer's doing the same thing. Everything you do is, is pipelining because they learned that... Um, there's a process that all your stuff is going through. It's all going through basically the same number of steps... Uh, but all you're interested in is, is the car that comes out on the end. So they figured out they could break things down and put it in pieces and have it go through that assembly line. That's what we call pipelining. So we've we've done amazing things. We, because, you know, I did it myself. Uh, humanity has done amazing things with threading and pipelining, but we're, we've reached the point where we just we kind of can't go anymore. Uh, Intel is, is reaching deep into their bag of tricks now and doing uh, lots of amazing things with multi-cores and and multi-processors on a chip and all that sort of stuff but they're still using the same processing this the the x86 instruction set the same uh complex instruction set code that they developed back in the early 80s um and which also means there's a lot of legacy cruft built in just stuff that was put into the chip in the 50s and has been become part of the x86 architecture and you have to leave it in there. You can't really optimize your chip because that piece of code written to run in 1984 will stop working if you stop putting it in there. So the the uh, CISC chips never got any less complex. They only got more complex, sort of like government. <laughs> you keep putting things in, you never take anything out. All right, talk for a minute, guys, so I can breathe. <laughs> 
And Magic <laughs> in the chat room is asking, is talking like the SSE and MMX and onboard math processors. And yeah, you're right, Magic. That those are extra things that have been added into the processor to make things faster or more efficient. And those are also the legacy that Mark was just talking about that have to be left in because stuff still calls that stuff. And and you know the the x86 architecture can probably last another twenty years, uh, pretty comfortably, and probably will be around in some format for a long time. But risk processing, reduced instruction set code, is the wave of the future. And let me tell you why. Risk stands for reduced instruction set. The first major consumer product using a risk chip uh, were the old Apple. Uh, PowerBook, the Power uh, PC, those were running RISC chips. Um, most notably, what you have in your home right now that is probably running RISC is your Xbox 360. In fact, they're using the same Power PC architecture that Apple abandoned. Um, and they do it really well. Why? Because it's a constrained environment. You're not asking it to do a world of things. You have a specific set of game instruction codes that you get you can run and it runs it really well so let's talk a little bit about um risk reduced instruction set uh computing uh it's the idea there is to uh to make everything as simple as possible break everything down uh into its elemental processes uh arm when we talk about an arm processor arm equals risk um, and in fact, risk um, stands for, excuse me, ARM stands for Advanced Risk Machines. That's a company. When we talk about an ARM processor, that is technology licensed from the specific company, from ARM, ARM Advanced Risk Machines. Uh, and they came along and said, let's do this differently. Let's break everything down to its elemental processes. Let's make the chip dumber instead of smarter. So why would you do that? Why would you think it would be a good idea to make a chip dumber? Well, for one thing, the chip can be a lot smaller, half to a third the size of a comparable CISC uh, chip. Um, it uses less power, fewer transistors, less power, produces less heat. These are all things that you want in your cell phone. You don't want your cell phone sucking the battery dry in an hour and heating up your pocket, unless you live in Montana and it's 30 below zero, and then that might actually be a biz, uh, selling point. It may be. We haven't had those cold winters that you'd need that for a while, though. I learned Thank quite you. by accident one day that you never want to keep a 9-volt uh, battery and a loose piece of, of hardware, in this case a nut, in the same pocket. Bad. Paper clip. Bad things, yeah. <laughs> I had a 9-volt battery. I was... I was moving i think it was and i just had this sort of junk drawer and i was kind of stuffing things in my pocket and i had just a loose screw or a nut or something like that uh in my pocket i threw a nine volt battery in there burned the snot out of my leg it was unpleasant um, i did the same thing with a paper clip yeah did you melt the paper clip yeah, oh yeah and, and the pair of jeans i was wearing too yeah it burned a hole right through it so uh, things not to do and you don't want that to process uh to happen with your cell phone so Almost all mobile devices, and there are a few notable exceptions, the Nokia M900, I said, and there are others, uh, are using the RISC chipset, even if it's not ARM. Uh, what is it? The um, Qual 
Qualcomm has something that they I forget what they call it. Um, there's uh, there there are different men, different names. They're not all ARM, uh, mm-hmm. but they're all RISC. And so, uh, but there are some some problems with that. The the programs need to be more complex. You need more storage and you need more RAM. But when I can go buy something a quarter the size of a postage stamp with 64 gigs of storage on it, that's not really an issue anymore because they're right. cheap. Um, and RAM, you know, we, we talk about RAM in terms of, of gigs now, not in megs, not, certainly not in kilobytes. When the, when the CISC uh, method of doing things was created, a, a byte was expensive. Now we talk about gigabytes as in like they're, you know, donuts. Hand me another gigabyte. It's not a big deal. You going to say something, Chris? No, I just agreeing with you. Gigabytes have gotten, you know, RAM has gotten to the point now where you can buy. I think I, when I bought my new RAM for this rig, I got sixteen gigabytes for forty three dollars or something like that. And it's the high high performance stuff, so it's super fast and super has really good timings. But yeah, it's it's to the point now where people are actually putting you know, solid state hard drives in your computers. So, you know, RAM and storage is not an issue anymore, which is why risk. From a, from a programmer's perspective, we essentially have infinite RAM and infinite storage now. I mean, that's, that's a gross oversimplification, but compared to the way it was back then. So we don't need everything in the chip anymore. Um, but, uh, so you need more storage, you need more RAM. The, the big issue is that things tend to be more error prone. You're doing way more processes to do that multiplication. Instead of one line, mult eight, seven, it's now um, read the value in this block. Okay, that's an eight. Read the value in this block. Uh, okay, that's a nine. Uh, come up with the product of the value in block one and block two. Now read the product that was put in block three. Uh, so it's a much more complicated process. And actually, you're not. Uh, you're, the product is a whole separate subroutine routine where you're saying add eight to itself nine times. You're not actually multiplying at that point. So it's a it's a more complex process, and you've got to code each one of those little things. Um, so that's a that's definitely a drown uh, a drawback. But the biggest one, and the thing that is re- the the reason that we now have phones with quad core ARM processors is that uh, you get one function per clock cycle. Okay, that that's true in um, sys computing too. You always get one function per clock cycle. That's that's just the rule of computing. But now instead of having that one function be a multifaceted, complicated uh, square root derivative thing, you get to do one thing. So all the steps that you used to do uh, that that mult the mult command for multiplying did for you, you now have to do yourself in individual iterations of the of the processor. So it's a lot more complicated, but we're getting we're we're superseding that by making our our code more streamlined and our processors faster. Uh, so you just you're not going to run uh, Photoshop on an ARM processor, not yet. It's just it's just too much work for that to do. But we're going to get better at that. I, I so. Um, but you can. Uh remote into a place or on right. on a website you could have photoshop running on a big server somewhere and then just 
functionally have the same thing. You know, as we move more to a cloud-centric model, the horsepower on your end device becomes less of an issue. So functionally, you don't have a distance. You don't have that. It doesn't matter. Right. Yeah, so that's a good way to look at it. The x86 is always going to be your workhorse. Not always, but for the foreseeable future, it's going to be your workhorse. Uh, but your your ARM processor can be your sports car. Uh, you you use that, you get things done, but when you really need to work, you have to hand that over to a CISC processor. I don't think that's going to be the case indefinitely, but for the foreseeable future, I think that's going to be the case. Um, so why do I think that risk is going to take over the world? Well, the world is all about mobile. That's something we've lamented on the last few shows, that even desktop OSs are moving to the mobile space. Uh, it's all about mobile now. That tablet computing and, and uh, phone computing, um, we're 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 not wanting workhorses anymore. We want sports cars, and we're we're all still going to have, you know, a, a computer that can do things, but we may not own it anymore. I, I think that in the next ten years, your laptops will be ARM processors, and like said, uh, Seth said, we'll go back to the old days of of computer sharing it'll be like uh like you used to uh, rent a terminal on the server and buy time on the server we're going to have you know a modern slimmed down version of that uh but uh, still in the in the the big daddy world of servers and and number crunching cisc still wins for now yeah, uh, because but, they're doing because of the way they do their instruction sets are more complex right and so, uh, you know, on the mobile uh, platform, uh, smaller chips mean smaller devices. An iPad couldn't be reduced down to the size of a 7-inch form factor, or my phone couldn't be a 4-inch form factor if it had to have an Intel x86 processor in it because you'd have to have a fan, and you'd have to have, you know, some advanced cooling. You're just not going to do it. So as we demand for things to be smaller, ARM's the way to go. It's going to uh, – battery life – that's a major spec. Everybody points at from from every mobile device: a laptop, a cell phone, a tablet, uh, a clock radio, anything. We look at battery life, uh, and so less processor, less uh, less battery consumption. In uh, it means uh, less transistors. It's all going to come down to using ARM in the in the phone. But here's the real thing that really sort of made this happen: is we got good at making cross compilers. A programmer can still write his C++ or Visual C or, or whatever um, program in his native high-level English-like language. The compiler then figures out all the other stuff. So he can write one code and compile it for a 64-bit architecture, compile it for an x86 architecture, compile it for an ARM ar architecture. These, uh, the, the more error-prone that I mentioned, the machines are, are taking that out of it. Because we've we've written software that we have perfected. It's not that the the software itself is better than the humans, but the humans have worked on that one thing, perfected that software. So we now have a compiler that can just make stuff work. Right. Uh, so the the right once run everywhere promise that was made by Flash and by Java and uh, by all these other things over the years is finally starting to come to fruition. You know HTML5. Right. These, we're, but we're, but it's not in the form that they ever said uh, thought. It's not going to be one language. It's going to be a, a really good set of compilers. So with all those things come together, you can create Windows 8 
where you get a near identical experience on the x86 environment and on the arm environment and as a developer you can write code that will run on both environments now windows 8 is probably the first to do that in a major market way and from all from what i understand the the implementation of it is still clunky from a developer standpoint but you know it's there we have arrived and we're only going to make that better over time yeah yeah it'll be curious to see what happens in say five years from now that should be a really big turning point for the ARM architecture, in my opinion. And Doddle brought up something else that that could uh, that would also extend the life of a sys, pro, a sys processor as well. We're also making major jumps in the quality of batteries. So your battery that only lasted eight hours before is now lasting, you know, you or was only lasting four hours before on a cell phone is now lasting eight hours. Because right. nothing, you know, they've they've changed the quality of the battery. The be- the battery has become more efficient at storing electricity. So a- as the battery things change and improve, the sys processor starts to stay alive. But in the same at, at the same token, though, if ARM can start or if RISC processors start taking over those high powered batteries turn from an eight-hour lifetime to, you know, a week. Right. And so. I think what's going to happen is, uh, right now, it uh, bandwidth is the bottleneck. Uh, you know, and we're, we're rapidly working to roll out 4G and LTE and all this uh, good sort of stuff. I think what's going to happen in the next six years is bandwidth will catch up with processors and we'll be able to hand tasks off between our phone and the cloud and back seamlessly. So if you're running a task that is too complex for your ARM processor, that will hand that task off to uh, a CISC processor running somewhere else and then hand the result back to your ARM processor. You know, we do that now with cluster computing. These supercomputers that we were talking about earlier in the show, that's that's how they do that. Uh, when one processor gets full, it hands it off to another. It's not one processor. It's a network of processors. Uh, but they're directly wired to each other with extreme bandwidth uh, across them. Yeah. So I think once our bandwidth gets better, we're not going to notice what processor we have. It's not going to matter because whichever we need is always going to be available. We'll just shift it around. Right. Right. Well, that's just like you were saying earlier about the desktop becoming a, you know, who cares what you're running because you're doing everything in the cloud anyway. So it's it just continuing that idea just lower in the uh, the list. So there's a, a whirlwind look at the history of the ARM processor beginning from the complex instruction set, moving to the reduced instruction set, and where we are today. We still need complex instruction set computing. We just need it less in our everyday lives. So uh, the ARM uh, chipset and, and its uh, kind are, are taking over. Um, Snapdragon, that was, that was one of the other processes. That's the, the Qualcomm. Uh, that's it. The Snapdragon. Yep, that's Qualcomm's. Yep. Yeah. Uh, so uh, those things, these reduced instruction set computers, are getting better because we have other hardware that can overcome the limitations of them. So, you know, I forget what it is. It's, uh, I think it's a Motorola phone. Uh, there may be more than one, but this one that I'm thinking of has four um, ARM chips, four cores on a chip. So it's a quad-core ARM processor 
running at a gigahertz and a half, 1.5 gigahertz. Um, so those two things together start to rival the performance of your Intel processor uh, back seven or eight years ago when you had a laptop with you know the original Pentiums. So now mm-hmm. we're we're we've caught up with Pentiums, and we're only going to start catching up more using the same tricks that uh, that the Sys guys did, uh, throwing things in parallel, better pipelining, making things more efficiently. So, um, you know, we're, we're going to get, uh, better at that. And I really think that, that, uh, arm is here to stay or risk whether it be arm or not is here to stay. And it, and it's going to be the future of, of computing. So there you go. That's my, uh, my show. <laughs> when I told the guys I wanted to do this, they both went, okay, Baba, you can do that, but we won't have much to say. <laughs> so and, and we didn't have much to, have say. to say about that. <laughs> yeah. um, so they uh, they got to sort of take the night off and do what I usually do, which is sit back and poke holes in an argument and not actually make any argument. So um, that, how how'd that feel, guys? Was it nice? It was awesome. Yeah, you know I don't have a problem with it. you can do it next week too, Mark. I <laughs> I think that's a great idea. <laughs> yeah, see, basically what they both were thinking was it's about time that guy pulled his weight on this show. <laughs> Oh, but we so, would never say that. I hope I was able to take the complex and make it simple while explaining to you how the complex became simple. Uh, if you have any questions, feel free to let us know uh, at com, And uh, go there. Uh, check us out. Use the Contact Us button at the top of the page. Uh, use the forums, as our friend Richard did, and uh, actually he did both of those things, uh, and uh, and make your wishes known. Or if you'd like, if you live in the U.S. or the continental north, uh, uh, or the the north North American continent, that's what I'm trying to say, U.S. and Canada, uh, you can use Yukon uh, territory as well. Uh, you can use Google Voice and leave us a voicemail outside the U.S. Sorry about that. Uh, that's just it. Just doesn't work. So, but you can also uh, just record something and send me an email, uh, an MP3. That's fine. You don't have to use Google Voice. So anyway, I, I would like to hear what you have to say about this. If you think I got it dead wrong, let me know. If you think I left something out, let me know, and uh, and I'll hear from you next week. So, guys, do we have any tips of the week this week? Oh, uh, we do. At least I do. Seth, do you want to go first? Uh, sure. I uh, came up with a good link. Uh, I Is know this where to find uh, more uh, funnel cake machines and things like that? <laughs> no, I haven't found a good site for funnel caking machines yet. So if you want to do your own carnival, you'll have to hold off another week. I know, you know, I know the Great Recession in America is officially over but if you're like me you wonder where all your money went and you just can't seem to get a handle on your spending you can go to www.mint.com and this has nothing to do with Linux Mint um, but it is a way like budget tracking software it'll tell you where you spend your money um you know what percentage did you spend going out to eat what percentage did you waste on soy mocha grande frappuccino lattes and you track your spendings (laughs) by category and see what you do and then you know give you a picture of where your money is going and that way if you need to make cuts you're like oh my gosh i didn't realize i spent 500 dollars a month at starbucks no wonder i can't make it through the month i'll have to cut back to 490 or whatever you can do that at mint.com you can set up 
your things and connect and see what's going on. And for the tinfoil hat crowd out there, you do have to give Mint your bank account information and your credit card information. You've got to give it all that information before it can do its work. So, yep. you know, you have to trust that they are trustworthy. They're they're owned by Intuit, uh, the, the people who made uh, uh, QuickBooks. Um, so, you know, and they're using the same back channels that your bank is already using if you bank online. But just know that that's... That's one of the things they're going to ask for you ask you for when you sign up is okay. What's what's your bank account number, and what's the password, yeah. and what's your credit card information? Uh, and, but they have to have that to do do what they do. And you know, it the, for for me, I I try to use it for my personal stuff as well. Uh, but I'm one of those unfortunate souls that my bank doesn't support them uh, in any way, shape, or form. And when I asked my bank if they are going to, they said. What is this thing you speak of online? What is this online? <laughs> so be sure to talk to your bank before you do it, just to make sure that you can use it. Um, but yeah, it's it's from what I was looking at, it looks like a great tool if you're trying to figure out where your money goes every month. Yeah, so I thought you know I would just share it out there, and you know this is something I understand that you know I caught a lot of flack from my fellow co-hosts about my link last week that I loved dearly. <laughs> This is something that you can actually use. Um, you know, not everyone can own a, a amusement park in their backyard, but everyone can track their money online if you have money. So uh, anyway, that's and it's, my. It's link. highly likely that their servers are running Linux, probably on <laughs> Cisc processors. Yes. <laughs> so anyway, there is an actual helpful link of the week. So, Mr. Command Line Godfather, what command do you have for us this week? Command us all, sir. But, you know, I, I, I bring this command to you in the simple fact that I had to use it earlier today when I forgot my password for my, uh, my little Acer computer that I haven't turned on in six months. But I still remember the root password, so go figure on that one. But I had to use it to change it, and I don't remember if I've given this one out before or not, but it's passwd. And then you, if you issue that on your own on your own account, it'll actually give you a, it'll change you, it'll allow you to change your own password. But if you do password wd and then the username, it'll then also allow you to change the password for that other user. So for me, it worked really well. It was fast, simple, and took me about thirty seconds to change my password and get back into my little laptop. By the way, episode 37, your tip of the was week it? was past WD. Well, that was over a year ago, so that's why I forgot. <laughs> and I only know that because I did a search through the Google Docs. <gasps> See how you are. So you could have done that too before bringing I the same app twice. I could, but it's a great tip. <laughs> <laughs> Must give a new tip, huh? That's what... Um, Magi Obi-Wan. Magi Obi-Wan, huh? A new tip for, off the top of my head. Oh, that's tough. No, off I, the it's hard tip to say which, of your head. But off the tip of my head. See, the problem is, is then I could get called off again saying that I've used it before. <laughs> so that's a really tough one. Um, so anyway, that, that's Dottle's our tip of the week. one out that I have not heard of before. That That's it. Fit that's the w. one. You get what you get and you don't throw a fit. As uh, as my uh, 
friends kids used to say so uh password pass wd um because everything in linux has to be shorter than normal um i'm surprised it wasn't pssWD. they don't they aren't usually vowels in linux commands um so try it on your friend's computer sometime and enter <laughs> random uh digits and see what happens there you go that'd be kind of fun but make sure you figure out you remember what those digits were. So if you have to uh, undo what you just did, you have something you can you know. And it, it's been a while since to. I used it, but if I remember correctly, it doesn't ask you for your current password. It just says no. Uh, yes, sir, boss. Pretty much. Yeah. So does that but work? You, in, um, it, does that work in a distro like uh, Ubuntu where root has been disabled? Actually, that's how you turn on root access. Yeah. It's pass WD, sudo pass WD, and then give it a password. Ah, okay. Yep. There you go. So I learned that when I actually I hosed my own and needed to use root. And uh, so, yeah, I, I, I Googled that. And <laughs> uh, okay, guys, I think I'm done. Any other uh, comments from the peanut gallery before we say goodnight? Pasta's yummy. It is indeed. That's what I had for dinner before we started this whole fiasco. Mm, pasta. My wife made lasagna last night. Yum. <laughs> so uh, I will also say, when I mentioned earlier feedback, uh, the most important piece of feedback you could give us is uh, to give us show topics. What would you like us to talk about? Because we're, you know, it's, it's hard. Podcasting is hard. No, but it's so uh, hard. We we really do uh, often struggle to come up with uh, with topics that are of interest to the vast, uh, the wide variety of of listeners that we have. We have you know we have the Uber geeks and we have the grandmas and everywhere in between. So uh, let let your voice be heard. If you want us to do a show on something, let us know over at elementopi.com. And uh, your voice will be heard. We may not, I'm not going to promise you you'll do it. Uh, I'll do it. I do say if you uh, leave us some feedback, we'll read it on the air. I don't necessarily say if you give us a show topic, we will do it. But we will certainly take it under advisement. So uh, And and think on it. We'll definitely think on it. (laughs) Yeah. And a shout out to anyone who found us last week from DistroWatch and tuned in this week to see if they still liked it. All right. Yes, we uh, got listed on DistroWatch's uh, top pod- newest podcast. I don't think it was top; it was just newest. So uh, that was nice on the do on the DistroWatch page on the left hand side, about three quarters of the way down. You'll see their list of Linux podcasts, and we're now on it. So that's kind of nice. Yay us! Yay us! <laughs> <laughs> and the second most important bit of bit of feedback you could give is to other people. If you like our show, tell them about it. Those are the two things that you can do. Tell us what you want us to do. Tell other people about it, uh, because that's how we grow. Uh, I've never done that's right. Never done any marketing. Uh, every listener we have has grown organically by somebody either stumbling onto the show or somebody uh, telling other people about it. I like it when people stumble on. I like it even better when there's referrals. So uh, you are hereby commanded to go and tell at least ten people in the next week about our show. And it can't be one person ten times. Don't badger anyone. Um, now, also, if you happen to be if you happen to be an iTunes user, rate us, give us a comment, 
and that will be a good thing. And let us know what you want. If you want us to improve on something or go into a deeper dive into something else, let us know. All right. Well, thanks for listening. Thanks for being uh, a good uh, pair of hosts, Chris and Seth. We I always appreciate you guys uh, being here. We appreciate your audience for listening. And uh, again, for those of you in the, the U.S., have a wonderful Thanksgiving. And don't set your house on fire deep frying your turkey. But for now, that ends this episode of Everyday Linux. Everyday Linux.